Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, the scripture readings for this Sunday continue our discussion regarding the cooperative effort involved in salvation we spoke about last Sunday when examining the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Our discussion from last Sunday can be summed up in three main points. First, we saw that God, the landowner in the parable, is relentless in his loving pursuit of us as the repeated call for workers to go out into the vineyard demonstrated. Second, we discussed how the vineyard can be interpreted as the whole world, the church, and finally, an individual. Regardless of the interpretation used, the vineyard symbolizes the place of God's ongoing work of salvation. When brought into conversation with one another then, these first two points yield a third important point. As discussed, vineyards require a tremendous amount of effort in order to be productive and beautiful. Constant attention and consistent work are needed to cultivate the land, ward off pests, stave off weeds, and nourish the vines. So too in the life of faith. For though our salvation is first to last God's work in us, it is not a zero-sum game. Rather, regardless of how long the process lasts, be it from infancy to old age or a deathbed conversion, salvation requires the harmonious cooperative effort of the divine and the human, the creator and the creature. As St. Augustine of Hippo puts it in Sermon 169, while God made you without you, he doesn't justify you without you. Our entry point for our discussion this weekend comes from the gospel passage for today. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, the parable of the two sons. Jesus introduces the parable as a sort of quasi-answer to the question put to him by the chief priests and the elders of the people in the passage just before this. In verse 23 of chapter 21, we read that the chief priests and the elders of the people asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? An important question to ask here is, what things are the chief priests and the elders of the people referring to? It is easy to be thrown off track if we aren't attentive to where we are in the context of the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. The reason for this is that, while on the liturgical calendar we are right in the midst of ordinary time, within the context of Matthew's Gospel, we are near the beginning of Holy Week. In fact, all of our Gospel readings for the remaining of this liturgical year take place during Holy Week in Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus' Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem and right up to just before the Passion. Presumably then, the chief priests and the elders of the people want to know why Jesus thinks he has the right to do things like ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, with people proclaiming him as the Son of David. They want to know why Jesus thinks he has the authority to cleanse the temple overturning the money-changing tables, and telling the people that they have turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. They want to know why Jesus feels free to heal people in the temple area, attracting attention to the point where children were proclaiming him, as the people had on Palm Sunday, as the son of David. Initially, when asked by what authority he has done these things, 
Jesus asks the chief priests and the elders of the people a question in turn. Jesus says to them, I shall ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I shall tell you by what authority I do these things. Then Jesus asks them, Where was John's baptism from? Was it of heavenly or of human origin? Realizing they are caught in a catch-22, for if they say of heavenly origin, Jesus will ask why they did not listen to him, and if they say of human origin, they will be in hot water with the people, the chief priests and the elders respond, We do not know. Thus Jesus says, Neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. Our parable for today follows immediately upon this exchange. Its setting is the same as that of last weekend's, a vineyard. What has changed is the characters involved, with the result of making the situation more intimate. For today, instead of hearing of a landowner or master of the house calling workers to labor in his vineyard, we hear of a father calling his two sons to work in the family vineyard. The father, who once again symbolizes God, we are told, has two sons, to whom he gives the same command. Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The difference in how these two sons react to their father's command holds the key to the parable, ultimately teaching us two very central spiritual lessons. The first son is said to have initially outright disobeyed his father's will. He simply says, I will not. While the second responds obediently, Yes, sir. If we stopped here, the difference is merely intellectual. The first refuses to assent to his father's command, while the second readily does. At this point, we have a situation very much like some of the tele-evangelists you see on TV or the internet. They preach the gospel for all of 30 seconds to a minute and say, Now just say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And sometimes they promise to send you some gift if you call a certain number or visit a certain website. The suggestion is that what is necessary for salvation is a very quick, simple, and sincere profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The deep irony here is that this is basically the language used by the two sons. In the Greek, both sons address the father with the word Kyrie, which means Lord. So the first says, No, Lord. And the second, as the televangelist would desire, says, Yes, Lord. The problem for the televangelist is that Jesus does not stop here. Rather, the manner he continues the parable in illustrates the condemnation God had once spoken to the people through the prophet Isaiah, and which our Lord echoes earlier in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Matthew. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. This is precisely what the second son does. He says, Yes, Lord. But his heart remains far from his head, a truth spoken not with the lips, but by his inaction. This is the first important lesson we learn from Jesus today. The Christian life is not simply a matter of intellectual assent or vocal profession of faith, no matter how sincere. Instead, Jesus' emphasis is clearly on action. This is seen first of all in the first son mentioned, who initially says, No, Lord but then, we are told, ends up going to work in his father's vineyard later on. More on an important detail in this verse momentarily. However, for now, we continue with our current line of thought. It is this son, intellectually and vocally disobedient, but obedient in action, who becomes the hero of today's parable. Jesus' emphasis is likewise on action when he cites the prophet Isaiah in chapter 15, 
verses 18 to 19 of Matthew's gospel. For the things that he says come out of the heart and defile a person are mostly actions that have to do with the way we live. In short, Jesus teaches us time and again what we learn in the letter of James, that faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus makes this point clear by putting another question to the chief priests and the elders, who would have no doubt known the passage from Isaiah quoted earlier. Which of the two did the Father's will? Jesus asked with respect to the two sons in the parable. The first, they reply by necessity, at this point perhaps unwittingly condemning themselves as King David once did, in response to the story told him by the prophet Nathan. Whereas King David is said to have burned with anger at the figure representing him in Nathan's story, promising to avenge his injustice, so now the chief priests and the elders of the people exclude themselves from the kingdom of God. Why? How did they fail to live God's will? How did they fall into the trap of serving God with their lips only and not with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? It goes back to the previous question Jesus had asked regarding the baptism of John and connects us to our first reading for today from the book of Ezekiel. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, which is also the first message Jesus proclaims. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The chief priests and the elders of the people succumbed to empty worship of God because they had failed to recognize their need for repentance, thinking themselves righteous. Jesus confirms this punchline in a way that would have no doubt infuriated the chief priests and the elders of the people. He also re-emphasizes that faith is something to be lived in the process. Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes did. Those who the chief priests and elders would have considered the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, Jesus says are entering the kingdom of God before they, who were the religious teachers of the people. The reason? They had faith, Jesus says. Once again, if we stop here, this may seem a matter of intellectual assent to a message. However, what Jesus says next rejects such a notion. He says, Yet even when you, the religious leaders of the people, saw that, you did not later change your minds and believe him. How could the faith of tax collectors and prostitutes be seen? They are the first son. They had undergone the change of mind, the conversion that resulted in repentance that the Greek makes clear in verse 29 and led to a clear change in action a clear change in way of life. The chief priests and the elders of the people should have recognized the will of God at work in the conversion and repentance exemplified by tax collectors and prostitutes. Why? Because they knew Scripture. And Scripture repeats this message time and time again, as is clear in our first reading from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. The pericope we are given from the book of Ezekiel for our first reading for today comes from chapter 18. It is situated in the midst of God's message to the people, which emphasizes personal responsibility, dispelling the ancient notion that sons and daughters pay for the sins of their parents and vice versa. Each will have to account for their own sins. Thus, God rhetorically asks the people through the prophet why they do not consider this just. Once again, we find the importance of a lived faith emphasized, that is, living in relationship with God. It is not good enough, says God through the prophet, to have been just once, 
and return to a life of sin. Listen. When the just turn away from justice to do evil and die, on account of the evil they did, they must die. The analog here is to the second son from our parable for today. He is initially obedient with his lips, but turns from that just action to injustice by his failure to live obediently. Similarly, in the next verse we find the analogy to the first son, who initially disobeyed his father with his response, but then acted in obedience as a result of repentance. But if the wicked turn from the wickedness they did and do what is right and just, they save their lives. Since they turned away from all the sins they committed, they shall live, they shall not die. There are three additional important takeaways to note here before moving on. First, just a couple of verses before the passage we hear today, God makes clear that he is not simply a disinterested judge in all of this. Far from it. God desires the conversion of the sinful, the unjust, to a life of righteousness, to a life of justice. Thus, in verse 23, God rhetorically asks, through Ezekiel, Do I find pleasure in the death of the wicked, oracle of the Lord? Do I not rejoice when they turn from their evil way and live? We find St. Paul relate the same message in verse 4 of chapter 2 of his first letter to Timothy. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who wills everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The second thing to notice in the passage from Ezekiel is the repeated use of the language of justice. Some translations use the language of virtue. While justice is a more faithful translation of the Hebrew text, the use of the language of virtue is not altogether inappropriate for a couple of reasons. First, the text is clearly emphasizing the lived aspect or moral aspect of one's life of faith. And second, both philosophically and theologically, justice belongs to the more general category of virtue. For the great tradition, any virtue of the human creature has one source, God, the origin and sustainer of all virtue. Consequently, all human virtue is participatory and imitative. With respect to the Old Testament, the virtue of justice appears most often in this manner. As Franciscan theologian Father Wayne Hellman points out, justice is described as characteristic of God in the Old Testament. Consequently, to be just is depicted as knowing God and imitating the divine activity of God. This is why the just live while the unjust die. The lives of the just are such because they participate in the life of God, who alone is the source of life, while the unjust die by separating themselves from the source of life. We thus clearly see an emphasis on the cooperative nature of salvation here, as we will momentarily when considering our second reading for today. However, before moving on, there is a third and final point to be made here that is essential. Notice that God never says how long the just must be just to live. What's important is what has already been emphasized, conversion and repentance. By way of implication, then, this reading from Ezekiel teaches us what we learned from last Sunday's parable of the workers in the vineyard. It is never too late to convert and live according to God's justice. Divine mercy comes to those who strive to live the life of God's virtue and justice, no matter how many times they stumble and fall, or how late in life they may come to it. Finally, we come to our second reading for today from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Its centerpiece is the famous Christ hymn, many think to have been written by St. Paul. 
Once again, we find an emphasis on the participatory imitation of God's virtue, this time specifically the participatory imitation of Jesus Christ, God's virtue incarnate. In order to see this, it is helpful to back up a bit and summarize what Paul has said in chapter 1 of the letter. Philippians is one of St. Paul's prison letters. Scripture scholar Dennis Hamm believes the letter likely to have been written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. It is clear from his tenor that St. Paul is writing to friends who have been there for him through his difficulties. But it is also a letter meant to encourage these friends who face various difficulties themselves as they strive to live the life of Christ. Dennis Hamm explains, The Christian community at Philippi was made up of those from the poorer classes of society. He writes, Over three-fourths of the Christian community was from the service groups and the poor, and 16% were slaves. The economic picture of the Philippian church, then, is of a small group, made up mainly of landless non-citizens who were somewhat financially insecure. As it would today, this placed the Christians at Philippi in a difficult position for many reasons, among which was feeling as though they would never move up or get ahead in a society that was highly focused on public honor. Again, as Dennis Hamm explains, Roman society was highly stratified and those in power generally thought of life as an honors race. In this case, honor meant both esteem and public office. Thus, to seek honor and seek office were one and the same thing. One held office in order to gain honor. Knowing all of this full well, Paul takes a creative approach to encouraging the Christians at Philippi. He wants to impress upon them that life is not an honors race in the manner that the Roman elites would have it. Rather, the only honor that the Christians at Philippi need be concerned with is the honor and glory of God. In other words, Paul is exhorting the Philippians and us to continually convert from the mentality of the age to the eternal mentality of the Son of God. And this, the Philippians and us can live out regardless of circumstances in life. Accordingly, St. Paul implores the Christians at Philippi not to get caught up in the mentality of the Roman elites. Rather, St. Paul writes, Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus. The language that St. Paul uses in the Greek is important here. The word translated as attitude is the Greek phronete, whose root is the word phroneo, which is also the root of the Greek word Phronesis. Phronesis, as Aristotle would have it, is central for the life of virtue, as it is a sort of wisdom for virtuous practical decision making. Implied in all of this, then, is the virtue of prudence. St. Paul using the terminology in a similar manner here. The way Paul gets at this is extremely important. How are Christians to live with the attitude of Christ, to make decisions in the moment as Christ would? Well, For starters, they can't do it alone. What is necessary is the grace of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul writes of participation in the Holy Spirit that unites Christians to one another and gives them the same mind and unites them in heart in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 2. It is the interior working of the Holy Spirit, then, that enables us to make decisions in the moment as Christ would. So far, so good. But what then? We spoke about the Christian life of salvation as a non-competitive cooperation between human and divine. What then, in terms of practical decision-making, 
does the Holy Spirit enable us to do? The Holy Spirit cultivates the mentality of Christ in us. And St. Paul describes this mentality with the virtue of humility. In verses 3 to 4, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfishness or out of vainglory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also everyone for those of others. The Christian, then, ought to make decisions in real time the way Christ does, humbly and out of self-sacrificing love. This is the core of Christian prudence, the type of prudence exemplified by the incarnation of the Son of God. This is the loving attitude that compelled Christ's willing acceptance of the cross. This is the love that most perfectly gives glory to the Heavenly Father. The Christian virtue of prudence, then, is making decisions in light of the gospel. My friends, this weekend, Jesus challenges us to live with his mentality. And his is a mentality which is just as countercultural today as it was when St. Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Our society is indeed an honors race. Look around. We are continually encouraged to immortalize and divinize ourselves, whether it be by creating some avatar of ourselves online that has a perfect, picturesque life, or by constantly tweaking our resumes and CVs to make it seem that more has been accomplished than actually has. All of our readings for today thus implore us to a life of continual repentance and conversion, of turning away from the mentality of the age and from our self-idols and through Christ back toward our Heavenly Father. By way of closing, I want to offer three practical suggestions as to how we might foster the Christian virtue of prudence within ourselves by God's grace. First, pray for the grace to make decisions as Christ does. Specifically, pray for the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel, which fosters the virtue of prudence within us, shaping and forming it with the love of God. Second, spend time observing the life of Christ in the Gospels. This is the best way to be exposed to the mind of Christ so that we might in turn imitate it. Finally, spend time with Jesus in the Eucharist, both receiving the sacrament and in adoration. You ever notice that people who have been married a long time talk similarly and sometimes even look similar to one another? This is because they share an entire life together. They have spent countless hours in conversation and observing one another's behaviors. If we are to think, speak, and act as Christ acts, we must do the same with Him. And He has given us the means to do this through the most precious sacrament of the altar. Prayer, Scripture, and Eucharist. These three will help us live out our faith in Christ Jesus, just as He lived in fidelity to the Heavenly Father, so that by God's grace, our lives might have a similar result. Compel those around to be converted and confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.